Women Writing the West is an organization of writers and other writing professionals who write and promote writing about the West, the American West, with emphasis on the experiences of Western women and girls. What you heard in most stories about women in the American West was that they were saloon girls or they were prostitutes. Uh, you didn't hear anything about, really, uh, a lot about the, uh, the stories of how they contributed in every facet of life. I wanted to wear boots and jeans, just like my brother Brian got to, to wear that. And so I, I don't think it was that I wanted to be a boy. Uh, I'm, right. I, I think I'm very right. human. Um, yeah, I just, I'm just, I was just like that. I can relate to that. I didn't want to be a boy. I just wanted to do the things that they could do and wear those clothes that they wore. Right. Absolutely. Why can't I? Why do I have to wear this scratchy, itchy lace? I want to wear jeans. I want to wear sweatshirts. Why can't I play football? Right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, a multi-generational conversation about leadership, power, gender, and justice through a female lens. I'm Ann Doyle. I'm the daughter of two city slickers, my father from New York City and my mother from Chicago, who both ended up for different reasons in Notre Dame, Indiana, and raised seven little Doyles there. So I grew up in the Midwest, Northern Indiana and Michigan, but from a very young age, no doubt because of all the Westerns that were on TV back then, I wanted to be a cowgirl galloping my horse across the open plains. My sheroes were sharpshooter Annie Oakley and Dale Evans on her horse, Buttermilk. So I was thrilled when I recently discovered Women Writing the West, which is an organization of women writers who all share a love of the West and the genre of writing about this fascinating part of American culture. And my guest today, is the current president of Women Writing the West, author Betsy Randolph. She has published multiple mystery and suspense novels, all set in the American West. She also writes the Pistols and Pruners blog, which features other female authors writing in the Western genre. But Betsy didn't start out as a writer. As a girl, she dreamt of being a police officer and served in the U.S. Army Reserve and 25 years as an officer in the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, including as the first female police officer for the city of Tonkawa, Oklahoma. A native of New Mexico who has lived in multiple Western states, Betsy joins us today from her home in Oklahoma. Hello, <laughs> Betsy. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. What a thrill. Well, it's so fun to have you. We're going to have a lot of fun with this conversation. Uh, and I know you love hats. I see that, you know, when we first talked, you were wearing a, a Western cowgirl hat. And now I see you're wearing a Harley hat. I am. I, I love hats. And I joke and say it's because I have big ears. And I think if I have a hat on, it kind of distracts from that. Hats and horses. Uh, but your definition of horsepower is more like a Harley Davidson. Is that right? You got it, girl. A har I've got a Harley and I've got a Triumph. I'm all about those, those steel horses. Well, let's talk about 
Women Riding the West first. Uh, tell us about that organization. What is it all about and how did it take shape? So Women Riding the West is an organization of writers and other writing professionals who write and promote writing about the West, the American West, with emphasis on the experiences of Western women and girls. And really what happened was the year was 1994 and six women got together in El Paso, Texas, and they met in this hotel bar and they sat around and they started discussing you know, the fact that there was not any women writing organizations out there and that they felt like that the, the stories of American women and girls and their contribution to, to taming the West really just kind of had been smoothed over. I mean, what you, what you heard in most stories about women in the American West was that they were saloon girls or they were prostitutes. You didn't hear anything about really a lot about the, the stories of how they contributed in, in every facet of life. And so these writers decided that they wanted to have an organization where not just women, but primarily women that would come together and write and they would have an annual conference. And so that was the first year, 1994 those six members, and now we've got today 333 members, and we're all over the United States. We're in Canada, we're in Germany, we're in Australia. Yeah, so we're everywhere. So it's not just, it's not just women, and it's not just, um, you know, women in the West, it's all over the United States. And like I said, we're worldwide now. And our writers primarily write stories that are set in the West, current, past. There is a lot of Old West that's out there. But like my books, like you said, they're set in Oklahoma and it's, you know, modern day. They're very contemporary. We have just a broad, broad range of women writers and different genres. Some do memoirs, some do poetry. So really neat, really, really neat organization. We're very welcoming and encouraging and really want our members to give back to the literary community by participating and, you know, especially with our organization primarily, but within their own communities to, to give back, whether that's in helping with little kids learn to read or mentoring young people or mentoring other writers or working, you know, at the, the library, just in any way to give back. Tell us about your writing, uh, your books, your novels, I mean, your characters. What are you trying to communicate? When I first started writing the series that I've got right now, the Cat Carlisle Mysteries, it's a murder mysteries. My favorite authors when I was, was growing up was Mary Higgins Clark and Tony Hillerman. And they, you know, Mary Higgins Clark primarily wrote about stuff that's on the East Coast. And her characters were primarily set there. But Tony Hillerman was in the West and in my part of the country, which was, you know, the Four Corners region uh, of New Mexico, the Navajo Tribal Indian Police. So they both had murder mystery, but both of them were, for the most part, PG-13 or so. And I guess technically that's what my writing would be classified because there is murders but there's not a whole bunch of profanity and there's not sex scenes and there's not uh, blood and gore and guts and that sort of stuff. You get the reader 
into the room and you show them what it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like, and you point out the clues that are there for whatever the mystery is. And then you allow them to learn about these characters by showing what the characters are doing. Are they, you know, poking a little kid in the eye when nobody's looking, you know, so that tells us about the character. But then at the same time, he's helping a little old lady across the street. You know, so I think that that's what I like about writing is that you can weave so many things into your characters. And my protagonist in my Cat Carlisle mysteries is a girl named Cat Carlisle. And she's a radio disc jockey, but she has this problem with telling little white lies. And I know a lot of people have that problem. I had that problem growing up. And so I think that when I was writing this character, it's not me, but it's about a bunch of people that I know, that we all know, that I think people can relate to. Anyway, so she, she is the protagonist in here and she has to accept the fact what her faults are and, and things that have happened in her past so that she can move forward with her life. And I wanted to write a very strong female character, not one that had to, had to be saved by some hairy-legged boy. I, <laughs> I wanted her to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. And I wanted the bad guys that were in her story to come to their own end not necessarily at her hand, but whatever their main character flaw was, that was going to be their downfall. So, so that's the Cat Carlisle mysteries and tokens of the liars, tokens of the lonely and tokens of the lost. And that's, that's that series. People can find your books, obviously, through Amazon and Goodreads. It's all, it's all there. But I want to go back for a minute to something that you were talking about in terms of your female characters. And you were saying that you wanted them to be, you know, self-reliant and self-sufficient. And that just triggered in me because I think that's what always attracted me, even as a little girl growing up, to the idea of these Western women. Oh, yeah. That they were so independent and strong. And, and you know, Dale Evans had her own, uh, you know, six shooter, you know, chasing those bad guys. How would you define the American West, which is a very unique part of this gigantic country of ours, which really is several countries rolled into one? Right. According to our guidelines for competition, we say the American West is anything north or as you were west of the Mississippi River. But I'm thinking more about the core values. Oh, yeah. So like that, the uh, not not geographically, although not it certainly me. is geographic. But you, you know what? It's me. not a Western hat and boots that makes someone a cowboy or cowgirl. What are the values that you uh -huh. think of when you think of the the American West that is captured in this genre that has people from all over the world writing about it and reading about it. We sometimes call it the cowboy code or the Western code. I, I think of honesty, integrity, loyalty, some of the same things that, that I learned in the army. And I think that's one of the reasons I loved the army and was drawn to it was because there was an expectation and probably law enforcement Absolutely law enforcement for the same reason. We want someone who is, we think about the West and these cowboys, the ones we loved and cowgirls that we loved. It was because they were honest and they did the right thing. And they stood up for someone who couldn't stand up for themselves. And they took care of themselves and they were brave and they were uh, tough. And again, self-reliant. We just, 
that you had to be that to come west. You, you had to be that. There was no other way. You had to know how to feed yourself and take care of your family and provide for yourself and uh, everything. And so I and have courage to go into a, a very it was a very dangerous place at that time. So scary. Yes, so scary. Scary. And all those women birthing babies in the back of covered wagons. Oh, my gosh, girl. I can't <laughs> even imagine. That to me is cr- I would not have survived. Like, I'm pretty sure. I suspect you would have. <laughs> Let's get into your leadership journey a little bit, Betsy, because I know you didn't start out as a writer. I mean, this is a whole second career chapter of your life. And so go back first to that little girl, Betsy Randolph. What are some of your strongest memories about what she was dreaming about and imagining? Well, when I was five, I think the very first time that I saw Adam 12 on TV, I knew, no doubt in my mind, I knew I was going to be a police officer. I knew I wanted to be a police officer. And that's all I could think about. That's all I could talk about. I drove everybody crazy. Little girls from school said, girls can't be police officers. And, and I'd heard that a lot growing up, that there, there were some things girls just couldn't do. And I'd never believed that. I thought it was absolute nonsense. My mom believed me. She, she understood me. She loved me. She supported me. She bought me my very first, it was a little metal launch, lunchbox, Adam 12. And, <laughs> and everything in it. And I carried that thing to first grade and the little girls just like looked at me and scrunched their nose up. I'm like, girl, I don't care what you think. I know what I'm doing. So, <laughs> But um, Adam 12, not everyone knows what Adam 12 is. So you better <laughs> tell people. Okay, so Adam 12 said in Los Angeles, it was a couple of Los Angeles. Well, there was more than a couple, but the two primary police officers, great guys, one blonde, one dark-headed one. They did everything like they were supposed to, by the book, and they took care of people, and they, they uh, served their community, and I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I tried to be interested in other things. It just it didn't work. It, it didn't work for me. And, and I had an older brother that, was 18, that is 18, young, 18 months older than me, and we were very close growing up. And I remember distinctly many, many times getting in trouble on our way, trying to get ready to go to church. And I wanted to wear what he wore, boots and jeans. And my mom said, no, you're, you're not wearing boots and jeans. You're wearing a dress. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it because I wanted to wear boots and jeans, just like my brother Brian got to, to wear that. And so I, I don't think it was that I wanted to be a boy. I think I'm very- right. I was just like that. I can relate to that. I didn't want to be a boy. I just wanted to do the things that they could do and wear those clothes that they wore. Absolutely. Why can't I? Why do I have to wear the scratchy, itchy lace? I want to wear jeans. I want to wear sweatshirts. Why can't I play football? Right. What? Absolutely. Why can't I play in the water without my shirt on? This does not make sense to me. We look exactly the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think there was a lot of this when I was growing up, heads butting into each other, not necessarily with my mom, but definitely with my dad, because he was the old school, girls can't do that, girls have to do this, and 
My, but my mom did not prescribe to that. And she did not force me to do, she never forced me to cook. Now I did help her clean. We all did, but she never, for, in fact, when I met my husband, I didn't know how to do laundry. I did not know how to cook anything because my mom didn't make me do that stuff. And because of that, I mean, you were able, despite culture, despite your dad, uh, to go in the direction you wanted to go. And you ended up in the military and uh, a long, long career in the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Absolutely. I was so blessed. I'll tell you what, I, I knew that I, what I wanted to do, but it was just a matter of getting there. And anybody that gets into law enforcement, if you, if you don't have any military and you don't have any uh, connection. It's really hard to get into law enforcement. It was back then anyway. And so the year was 1992 and my parents just could not afford to pay for me to go to school. I got Pell Grants because they made so so few money, so little money rather. And so I, I tried to go to school and I did do what they asked me to do for a year and a half, which was go to Bible college because my, my dad was a Baptist preacher and I did, I tried to do what they wanted. But that wasn't what God called me to do. He called me to be in law enforcement. And so once they finally accepted that, it, it was it was easier on them. It was all I always knew what I was going to do. It was just a matter of getting them to get on board if they, you know, I wanted them to be happy with me. But I wanted them to also understand what I think we all have a calling. We all have some we can't all be the same thing. We're all cogs in this big wheel of life. And so mine was to do that. And so I, I joined the military so that I could get money for school but also because the Gulf War had broke out. And I, two things my brother and I always played, and that was cops and bad guys, cops and robbers, and cowboys and Indians. And those are the two things that, I, that shaped my life, those, those shows that we watched and the games that we played. And it was all good stuff. It wasn't bad. It was, none of it was bad. It was all good stuff. Even when you had to be the robber, somehow you could still do good stuff. You didn't have to always be bad. And that's what life is like anyway. That's what characters are like anyway. Characters in books, characters in real life. They're not 100% bad. They still have someone that loves them. They still love someone themselves. But I'm also curious about, you clearly had this calling from, I mean, a very, very young age, wow. but you were up against uh, the resistance from your father, a lot of resistance from culture at that time for girls. Right. And that experience of being the first woman police officer in probably a small Oklahoma town. It was what did you small. learn from that? How did you, how did you manage that? And what did you learn from it? I don't know that there was any managing that. I, I really stump. I don't think I stumbled necessarily into that job. I was trying, I was working for the college paper, going to college and, and writing for the paper. And I had tried to interview the chief of police of Tonkwa on a story where they, his police officer had come onto campus and arrested a student and then to, and took him away. And then later came back, took the handcuffs off and let him go. And I wanted to know why. And I wanted to know what he was arrested for and why they did what they did because everyone saw it. And he just went around and around, kept, you know, dancing around, would not tell me the truth. And finally, he put both hands on his desk and he leaned across the desk at me and he goes, would you like a job? We need someone someone like you to come work for us. And I'm like, I know you're just trying to get me not to follow this story. And he said, no, 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 I'll tell you the story. It's not even that big of a deal. 
He said, I'll tell you the story, but I want you to, I want you to apply for a job. And so, wow. so I called his bluff and I filled out the application and they hired me. So, but I had already gone through the military police training with the army reserves. And, and I think that that obviously helped some. So that part of it kind of smoothed the way, but they'd never had a female police officer before. And I was badge number seven, seven of seven in that small little town and, and loved it. Uh, absolutely loved it. When I went through the police academy in Oklahoma City, we also had the building had troopers in the building and they taught some of our classes. And I followed my husband around until he finally asked me out. I mean, I was just absolutely smitten with this boy. And so he finally did ask me out and the rest is history. (laughs) And you had a 25 year career uh, as an Oklahoma State Patrol. I was on maternity leave with Tonkawa, pregnant with my son, was on maternity leave. And my son was four months old when the Oklahoma City, the Murrah bombing happened. And so there was a state hiring freeze, and but the governor lifted that freeze and hired emergency hired people, and I was one that he hired to come work for the Oklahoma Capitol Patrol. And then in a few years, they rolled it over to the cap to the Highway Patrol, and I left the Capitol and then went out to work the road. But when I worked at the Capitol Patrol, I was the very first female to get promoted to the rank of sergeant. And, you know, it didn't dawn on me that that was even that big of a deal at the time because I, I don't know, it just wasn't. Let me take you to a little serious, more serious subject. Sure. You know, talking about, you talked about the the Oklahoma bombing that, you know, you were hired and, and involved at the time of that terrible crisis. And I want to ask you from your experience as uh, a, a police officer about this terrible tragedy we just had here in my home state of Michigan, where uh, a 15 year old just, you know, took a took a handgun to school and murdered four of his classmates, injured um, multiple others. And the parents have been arrested now, as well as this 15 year old boy. I'm interested in your perspective about that. I know that you're a gun owner. I mean, you're a member of the NRA. You're a, a former longtime police officer. When you see a situation like that, what, what do you think we should be doing in this country? Oh, girl, let me tell you. Number one, I think we absolutely need to get a hold of our young people and get them to communicate with each other without violence. I don't understand how we've gotten so far I I don't understand the heart and mind of young people nowadays, but what I really don't understand, and you're right, as a a law enforcement officer and being in the military, and you, you said it, I'm a life member of the NRA. I don't understand why people allow uh, someone that they know that either has mental health problems or emotional problems to, to have any kind of weapon, especially a firearm. I do not understand that. And I'm glad I applaud the DA's office for filing charges on the parents because I I think that that's right. And then we're not going to see any different until we start holding people's feet to the fire, until we start keeping better account of our firearms or any weapon, but especially our firearms when we've got someone in our home that we know is mentally unstable. 
And there had to have been other red flags. And I, and that's the part I don't understand as a parent, if you've got a young person in your home, that's, that has a pro that has mental problems. And let's be honest, who doesn't have problems nowadays? We all have problems on to some level, but how do we deal with that? And as a family, how can we help this young person? It's hard being a teenager. It's hard being a adolescent. It's hard being a, a college age kid. Hell, it's hard being a woman in your fifties. <laughs> you yeah. yeah. It's hard not, not to want to run people off the road or pull them out of the car and knock an auto on their head when they drive like a fool. I mean, we all have irritations. We all have things that hurt our feelings and, and hurt our heart. But how do we deal with that? Violence is not the answer. I, I have firearms in my home and on my person to protect myself and to protect others. But what I, what I hate to hear is when people use any weapon, but especially a firearm, to try to even the scales when they've been wronged. That to me does not make any sense at all. And do you feel that we should do more in this country in terms of requiring people to take responsibility for keeping their weapons safe? Absolutely. I mean, they pass out those gun locks, put a gun lock on your firearm, put your weapon where your young person can't get a hold of it. And, you know, here's the deal. Just like I said earlier, if this young person had done, had used any other weapon, it would, my statement would still be the same. The family knew he had problems. They allowed him access or gave it to him or whatever. They knew that they were in trouble before the law even came looking for them because they knew in their heart of hearts, they knew that they should have done something more to help them. And until we start holding people accountable for their young people in their home, until we do that, nothing's gonna change. And they, they can write a statement that says, I'm so sorry, and we're praying for the family. That doesn't do anything. But until we prosecute them and take, take their time and take their money, that will, change their, that will change their actions and that will change the actions of others. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your, your feelings about that. You're welcome. Before we lose you, what is your advice for other writers? Because I know that you had this whole incredible career and that you, you knew this was your calling from a little girl, but eventually you moved into this whole new area, which is such a big part of your life now. And I see all the books behind you in your beautiful library there. How did you make the transition to becoming a writer? And what is your advice for other writers who, who want to do it, but they really just never started? You just have to write. I mean, and that's really all it's about. If you love to read, you know what you like to write. You already know. So just do it. I found out I was injured in the line of duty. And this was before I'd gotten promoted to lieutenant with the patrol. I had uh, been injured, so I was off work, and I was going stir crazy, trying to find something to do to keep myself occupied. So I started doing online courses. I love to go to school. I'd do it full time if someone would pay me. And <laughs> I, I think that, so I took these writing courses, and I had so much material that I put it into a book, and I was part of a writer's group, and the, the founder wanted to publish that first book. And so but really what it took was 
the dedication. You have to put your carcass in the seat and you just have to start writing, whether it's writing with a paper and pen, whether it's writing on your keyboard and just write. And then don't be such a chicken. You have to be brave. Just like those, those things we were talking about, about the Western ideas and, and the, that cowboy code, you have to be willing to release that baby and give it to someone so that they can read it, so they can tell you whether it's crap and you should go back and try again, or whether <laughs> it's worth you know, publishing and putting out to the world. So you, you have to have courage. So that's my advice is write and have courage. And if you do, I think there's a book in everybody. Everybody has a story, whether it's just your family history or it's a memoir about an event that happened in your life or stuff that you want to pass on to your kids and grandkids. I, I think that everybody has something to contribute and we should. Well, Betsy Randolph, it has been so fun to talk with you. I really hope that you and I meet someday out West. And in the meantime, how can people get in touch with you, your website, and also your organization of Women Writing the West. We would love, and we welcome all writers and all genres and all time. Women Writing the West, you can find us at womenwritingthewest.org and Betsy at BetsyRandolph.com, my website, BetsyRandolph.com. You can check out my blog, like you said, The Pistols and Pruners. I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Facebook, but you can find me at BetsyRandolph.com. And you can also find Betsy Randolph riding her Harley across the West, right? That's right. As long as it's not too windy and it's not too cold and it's not too hot. I'm a fair weather (laughs) rider. (laughs) Well, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me to be on here and to give that plug for Women Riding the West. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I wish you continued success with your writing and with your leadership for Women Riding the West. Thank you so much, Betsy, for being with us. Now let's all go. Power up. Thanks for joining us at Power Up Women. We hope you'll keep listening and share us with your network. And remember, when one woman rises, we all rise. Make sure you reach back and lift others as you climb. I'm Ann Doyle.